the parable of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. I'm just going to pray for Mike before he comes up to speak. Father God, I thank you that we have the privilege of hearing from your word every Sunday and letting it impact and change our lives. And Father, we pray for Mike. We thank you for him. We thank you for the privilege it is to hear him speak every week. And we pray, God, that you would fill him with wisdom, with power, and with love as he speaks. And God, that they will be your words, um, and that we would listen, open our hearts, and be changed by them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, um, Hello, I'm Mike Tyndall, one of the ministers. I'm going to be speaking here today and uh, hope my voice will hold out. Uh, Roy Hattersley was a British politician and a public intellectual with a very long and distinguished career. He served as Member of Parliament for more than 30 years and he was the deputy leader of the Labour Party for a time. He wrote 15 books and he was a prolific journalist. He won the Granada TV Journalist of the Year Award. Hattersley was a convinced atheist, but in 2005, he wrote an article in The Guardian titled, Faith Does Breed Charity. We atheists have to accept that most believers are better human beings. He said that most of the people, in his opinion, who were providing disaster relief after Hurricane Katrina, and practical care for the old and the sick and the homeless, had religious faith, even though he himself felt their religion was hopelessly outdated. He wrote these words. Last week, a middle-ranking officer of the Salvation Army, who gave up a well-paid job to devote his life to the poor, attempted to convince me that homosexuality is a sin. Late at night, 
on the streets of one of our great cities, that man offers friendship as well as help to the most degraded and degenerate human beings who exist just outside the boundaries of society. And he does what he believes to be his Christian duty without the slightest suggestion of disapproval. Yet, for much of his time, he's meeting needs that result from conduct he regards as intrinsically wicked. Civilized people, says Hattersley, don't believe that drug addiction and male prostitution offend against God. But those who do are the men and women most willing to change the fetid bandages, to replace the sodden sleeping bags, and argue without a trace of impatience that the time has come for some serious medical treatment. John Wesley insisted that good works are no guarantee of a place in heaven, but they are most likely to be performed by people who believe that heaven exists. So Hassersley said, the correlation is so clear that it's impossible to doubt that faith and charity go hand in hand. It ought to be possible, he says, to live a Christian life without being a Christian. Or better still, to take Christianity a la carte. The Bible is so full of contradictions, we can accept or reject its moral advice according to our taste. Yet, men and women who, like me, cannot accept the mysteries and the miracles, do not go out with the Salvation Army at night. Now, Hattersley was picking up on something with a very deep roots. Throughout the long history of the Christian church, followers of Jesus have often been known for their care for the poor and for the deprived, for the suffering and the powerless, and by their pursuit of justice for those who don't get justice. And when we open the Bible to find out what it says on this subject, we find that we've hit a rich seam. The Word of God is consistently deeply preoccupied with the subject of justice. And by justice, I include social concern for other people and social action. And so it is fitting that we include this as one of our key values uh, that we're thinking about as a church for six weeks. We're on to the fifth one there, justice. We started off thinking with, about worship. Worship is the goal of everything. It's the, the, the reason for which uh, our church exists is to make us into worshippers and to call other people into the great pleasure of worshipping Jesus Christ. Everything points toward worship, and worship only comes about if you understand and receive the good news, the gospel of Jesus. The, the word that says that you're more wicked and sinful than you ever dared to believe, but more loved and accepted than you could possibly imagine. And that gospel, when it's truly accepted, calls people not just into faith with God, but into relationship with each other and pulls them into community. And so our church is dedicated to being communities of light, which Mel uh, prayed uh, in her lovely prayer just a few minutes ago. But we're not into community for its own sake. It's not an end in itself. Community is also about empowering us and building us up to reach out to others in mission. And we thought a couple of weeks ago about some of the great mission or commission statements that Jesus gave to his followers. We are sent. So our identity as believers is to be sent into the world with a message to all kinds of people in the power of the Holy Spirit. So fifthly, we're going to think about justice. But I've got to admit that putting this on the board, putting it up on the scoreboard as one of our core values is new. 
And I've only done so with unanimous encouragement from other, the other leaders of the church. And I want to start just by pointing out that there are two uh, dangers. They're kind of opposite dangers, but they're, they're both dangers that Christian churches face when they start engaging with social justice and social action. One danger is to become so passionate about social justice that we forget our calling to preach the gospel and to make disciples. Forget it. Now, some churches have done this historically, and they then lost the gospel that first engaged them. They ended up with something called a social gospel, which was full of charity, but it was empty of, of the message about sin and about the wrath of God and his judgment on sin. The cross and Jesus' atoning blood shed for us. Salvation that comes through grace alone, by faith, and the redemption that comes from Jesus. They, they lost all of that, and those churches eventually wither and die. Now, during the first half of the 20th century, many evangelical Christians, Bible-believing Christians, saw that was happening, and in reaction, they swung like a pendulum too far the other way. They said, the mission of the church is to preach and make disciples, not to do social work. So they withdrew from pursuing justice as churches, although they still believed in individual charity, and they vacated the public square. Now, as a result, many evangelical Christians in the West, United States, and Britain, and Europe, are still uneasy about how they relate to social justice in the church. And this is pretty ironic, because for hundreds of years, social justice was a shining jewel in the crown of evangelical churches. 20th century was a big change. Now, by contrast with this, the liberal churches and often the charismatic Pentecostal churches don't have a problem. They don't have this baggage. In fact, they often see that a passion for justice is a core part of being a Christian. Just this Friday, I, I met a friend who lives in London. She referred to some churches, these are her words, who are liberal. You know, they're really into social justice and charity stuff. Now, that's an interesting comment. I don't know the churches she was talking about. And they might be liberal, but the fact that she immediately tied in uh, concern with charity and social uh, justice to that shows you that people often identify those two things. But today, I want to persuade you that a passion for justice is an essential part of being a Christian, and therefore Grace Church should be passionate about social justice. A passion for justice is an essential part of being a Christian, and therefore our church should be passionate about it together. I'm going to give you three reasons why we should be so passionate about justice. The character of God, the reign of God, and the grace of God. The character of God, the reign of God, and the grace of God. Firstly, the character of God. And I forgot to show you this amazing slide. Ah! Oh, there's the gospel. Issuing in mission, community, and justice in the city, leading to worship. I'm such a doofus. The slide! Anyway, we'll show it next week. Back to justice. Why should we love justice? The character of God. Social action, social concern are rooted in the character of the living God. See how God is described. Psalm 146. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. 
Christian friend, what, what kind of God do you worship? What is he like? The answer is, he is one who upholds the cause of the oppressed, who provides for the poor, who liberates the slave, who sustains the marginalized and the vulnerable. That's his character. He is a God of justice. That means that he also opposes the perpetrators of injustice implacably. And he sides with the victims of oppression. He expects his people to do the same. This is from the book of Proverbs. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. God is absolutely passionate about this. Some of the most searing texts in the whole Bible are directed at God's people when they claim to worship God but fail to do justice. Listen to God speaking through the prophet Amos. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs! I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. See how passionate God is? There's nothing worse to him than religion that comforts the worshipper, but leaves him or her indifferent to the cries of the poor and downtrodden. Isaiah chapter 58. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you haven't noticed? Here we are. Now wait for what God says. On the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry? To provide the poor wanderer with shelter? when you see the naked to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Our God will not hear his people when they ignore the poor. He doesn't want to hear it. So if our God upholds the cause of the poor, what should we do? What should we be like? God described King Josiah in these words, Jeremiah 22 verse 16. Josiah defended the cause of the poor and needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? Is that not what it means to know me? So the question for us then is, do we know this God? Do we know him? Do we love him? Then surely we will love the things that he loves. He's so passionate about justice. In the law of Moses, which set out the life for God's people, Israel, concern for the poor was was enshrined and embodied. It commanded the people to be generous, not stingy, open-handed towards the poor in the land. It had laws that safeguarded the needs of the poor and their dignity. 
There was a law about gleaning. Farmers weren't supposed to go right to the edge of the, the crop and right to the edge of the field. They were supposed to leave a sort of a boundary where the poor could come and pick food for themselves so they wouldn't have to rely on charity. They weren't supposed to go round and round picking off every single bit of their crop but to leave some hanging there so that the poor could glean. There was a law prohibiting interest on loans to the poor. In Israel, you couldn't have these terrible payday loan sharks. You know these guys that lend money at hundreds of percent interest, just crushing people down? You couldn't do that in Israel. It was forbidden in the law. There was even a law called the Law of Jubilee, which meant that after a certain number of years, if someone had fallen into poverty and had to sell their ancestral home and land, it would be given back to them free so that they could be restored again to the economy. This was all in the law of God. Now that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Christians, people who follow Jesus. Does, does the New Testament say anything about this? Listen to James, Jesus' brother. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Very interesting there, the balance between looking after orphans and widows in their distress, which is eminently practical and physical and real and earthy, and on the other hand, keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. Spiritual purity, a quest for holiness. In the Bible-believing churches, we've often downplayed that and emphasized this, but James has to hold them both together if religion is to be pure and faultless. Why should we love justice? Because of the character of God. Secondly, the reign of God. Many of you here know the story of the whole Bible. We talk about it a lot in this church. We love it. The grand narrative of the Bible is a story of creation, a story of sin, a story of exile, and a story, finally, of restoration and redemption. God creates a beautiful world and he fills it with great abundance and provision. There's enough for everyone. There's more than enough. God's world is ordered. It's stable. It's generous. It's rich. But human sin disrupts the order and creates chaos. In the dark and fallen world that we now inhabit, there is a constant bias towards injustice and unequal distribution of goods. But, the trajectory of the Bible is towards justice, towards the reconciliation of all things under one head, Jesus Christ. And that means, on the one hand, the forgiveness of our sins and its removal of our shame and guilt before a holy God. But it also means, totally wrapped up in the same salvation, the restoration of all things and justice being done. That is the reign of God. You see it most clearly in the life of Jesus, don't you? Here is God in the flesh. What is he going to be like? He's walking the streets. First century Palestine. He's wearing sandals. He's eating meals. What does he do with his great power, his influence? The answer is he announces the kingdom of God. He teaches it, preaches it, and he constantly does justice. Jesus was passionate about human flourishing, putting people back together. His healings, his raising people from the dead, his provision of food in the wilderness, his even casting out evil spirits, these things are not only demonstrations of God's power, they also give us a window into the world to come. They are a preview of forthcoming attractions. Jesus is showing us what, what the world is like when God is present in it and justice is done. 
And throughout the Gospels, Jesus is constantly engaging with the poor and the marginalized, the sick and the homeless, the outcast and the needy. He, he goes to a leper, a leper comes to him, he touches him. Nobody would do that. Jesus touches him and he, the man feels a touch he hasn't felt for many a year. Just out of compassion, and he heals him. He goes to parties with sinners who the religious establishment despise and avoid. And he even brings the despised tax collectors into his family. He reaches out to the widows and orphans. If you want to know what the reign of God looks like in human society, it is found in the career of Jesus of Nazareth. And it's so attractive that it has inspired countless people who don't even believe in Jesus. Countless people who are actually atheists are inspired by reading about Jesus. Now here's the question for us. If that's what the reign of God looks like, and that's where history is heading, and the work of Jesus is a foretaste of the world to come, what implications does it have for a church? Wouldn't it be bizarre and weird if God was passionate about justice, and Jesus brought it, but the church was only concerned about spiritual things? and ignore the deep needs of those on its doorstep. Wouldn't that be weird? It would just seem completely inconsistent. Surely, surely the church is a show home of the world to come, announcing the reign of God in human society, and therefore it follows that if we are experiencing the kingdom of God in our midst, as our lives are put back together under his good rule, and we are an outpost of that kingdom of God in this city, then we should be a people who pursue justice, shouldn't we? Doesn't it follow? And not just justice for ourselves, but for, for the, the broken, the needy, the poor, the powerless. So those are the first two reasons why we should be passionate about justice, the character of God, the reign of God. But the third reason I think could be the most powerful. It is the grace of God, the grace of God. Now, a lot of you know I used to be work in business. I was a headhunter, not the kind who cuts people's heads off, the kind who secretly steals them away from one organization to help another. But I worked for the charity sector, and one time we were searching to find a board member for a, a big, famous charity. And the thing about this, this appointment was that it was unpaid. There was no salary. And it did carry a lot of responsibility because the person was going to be on the board. But my boss pointed out to me that being on the board was very prestigious and that people would want to do it for influence and because it would make them look good. And she said these wonderful words, everybody wants a salary or a round of applause. Everybody wants a salary or a round of applause. You've got to give them one or the other. In other words, nobody gives themselves for nothing. Nobody's going to give themselves for nothing. We all, we're all motivated by reward. This is obviously true of children who behave well for sweets. Lots of young parents here. Great to have you here. You can instill good behavior just, just with a few simple sweets. Then you'll have an obedient child with no teeth. <laughs> but if we're honest, we all live a bit like that. Our goodness is usually motivated by some kind of reward. How often do you give yourself knowing that you will get nothing in return? Now the story of the Good Samaritan, which Rupert read for us, is so well known that a number of charities are named after it. There's a global 
NGO called the Samaritan's Purse. And in the UK, we have a charity called the Samaritans. We're very imaginative with our naming of charities. Now, I, 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 I'm not objecting to those names, but I think the charity names reveal a potential problem, which is this. We tend to hear and read the story of the Good Samaritan as just a moral fable. You know how my fables work? You tell a story of a good deed, and then the, there's a moral at the end, which is uh, go and do like, like that, try harder and do your best. Now, there's definitely a moral challenge in this story. If you've, if you've closed your Bible, open it again to page 1042, Luke 10, page 1042. Because at the, at the end of verse 37, Jesus tells the man, go and do likewise. So there's a moral challenge. Uh, but is that what the point of the story is? I think this story is really all about the grace of God. And I want to persuade you of that with two questions. What's the point of this story and what is your place in it? Where are you in this story? Now the point of the story, the context is there's an expert in the law. That means he's a religious lawyer. He's an expert in God's law, the Old Testament, and a, a very influential person in the society. He, it says in verse 25, tries to test Jesus. Teacher, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is very shrewd. He's never taken in by these kind of things. He immediately knows the guy is, is testing him. And so he, he, as he often does, replies with a question. And he says, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? You're the religious lawyer. And the guy says, he knows his stuff. He quotes Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, Leviticus 19 verse 18. Two great summary texts of what the whole of God's law is about, which is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. That's the summary of the whole of God's law. 600 and how many commands was it? 613. It can be boiled down to two. So Jesus says, You've answered correctly. Well done. Now, go and do that. <laughs> and you will live. And the guy goes a bit pale. So he, he, tries, to, he tries to justify himself. He says, um, <clears throat> okay, who is my neighbor? <laughs> now, remember, he is a lawyer. This is what they do, isn't it? You know, it's kind of. Let's, let's, just, let's just go back to the small print. Uh, love your neighbor. Who is my neighbor? I'm on, I'm on the end terrace, so I only have one neighbor. It's number four. Well, there's two of them. Now, here's the, uh, this lawyer asking the question, who's my neighbor? And Jesus then replies with this famous story about this traveler going down the Jericho Road. He's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this road was famous it was infamous because it was so dangerous. It, uh, it drops thousands of feet within about 11 or 14 miles or something like that. And it, the road had loads of caves and kind of dark alleyways and things down it where robbers and bandits could hide. And it was very easy with no street lights for a traveler to, to basically get coshed on the head, take all his stuff, and they would escape and never be caught. It was a really dangerous road. It's a bit like kind of... Um, walking down a dark alleyway in a, in a really tough inner city place like, like the Bronx or something and going down there at night on your own, you're asking for trouble. So Jesus says, just think about this traveler, he's going down the Jericho Road 
And they think, okay. And then, sure enough, what happens? You know, these robbers come and they attack him. They strip him of his clothes. They, they take his designer trainers and they beat him and they go away, leaving him half dead. So he's just lying there, bleeding, battered, and absolutely in need. And who comes? A priest! This is good news. Priests are the guys who are supposed to look after people. That's their job. You know, priests. And the priest sees him and he passes by on the other side of the road. He thinks, you know, I'd love to help you, but I've got so much to do and I've got loads of people to help. Because <laughs> that's my job. So then there's a second chance. This Levite comes. Now he's the other kind of guy in the culture whose job is to care for people. And the Levite comes down. Well, there's a bit more hope. Oh. He, he sees him and he thinks, I just can't get involved with this one. It's too dangerous. You know what? I could actually get robbed myself. Look what happened to him. And if I got robbed, then, well, I wouldn't be able to help all those other people I'm supposed to look after. So, you know, it's strategic. I'm just going to leave him be. Sorry about that. See ya. Bye. So then there's a third person comes, and it is a Samaritan. Now, you don't know what this meant to the Jews when they heard this word. The Samaritans are the traditional enemies, and these groups hate each other. There's no love lost. They're basically racist toward each other. Do you know at one point in John's Gospel, some people try to insult Jesus, and they say, you are a Samaritan. (laughs) Because it's just the worst kind of insult they can give. That tells you everything. So there's every reason for this Samaritan to see this Jewish guy lying there, beaten and bleeding, and to think, do you know what? I don't owe him anything. But he stops. He stops to help a battered man in a high-risk area. He goes out of his way to help. He postpones his own plans. He tends the man's wounds personally. He risks catching whatever the guy has got. He cares for the physical wounds of a stranger. He puts him on his donkey. He takes him to an inn to take care of them. He, he spends money and he opens a tab. So he's risking financial costs there. He gives out of his own resources with eye-popping generosity. Now, who on earth does that? Really? The priest and the Levite have passed by. Even the best people, whose job is to look after the poor and the needy, pass by this guy because this one is too costly. And so here's what Jesus is saying. If you're going to truly love your neighbor, then you have to be radical. You have to go out of your way to help them. You have to be staggeringly generous with your hard-earned cash. You have to reach out to people who probably hate you. And you have to give them a lot of time and money. You have to change your plans to help them. It will be inconvenient. Let it be so. Be at risk. Get ripped off. Think of the person you would least like to help in the world, a person who's completely undeserving. Jesus says, go to that person and help them out even if it costs you dear and you get nothing back. You won't get anything out of it. You'll probably be taken for a ride. That is what loving your neighbor means. So Jesus is saying, who is your neighbor? Anyone who's in need. Not just your own people, anyone who's in need. So what's the point of the story? Nobody does this. Nobody does it. Nobody really wants to do this. Not naturally. We're all motivated by reward. We don't give ourselves for nothing, do we? Let's be real. 
Now, if the point of the story is nobody does this, then what is Jesus getting at with it? He's not just holding it up and saying, be like the Samaritan. He's saying, you're not like the Samaritan. No one is. He's holding the bar so high that we realize we're going to fail. So what is he getting at? The answer to that is in my final question, which is, where are you in the story? Where are you in the story? We know that this lawyer is not asking a genuine question. It says he's trying to test Jesus. He's not a solicitor or a barrister. His field is religious law. He knows the Bible. He knows the answer, or he thinks he does. And Jesus says, how do you read the law? And he gives the right answer. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the way, Jesus says, to eternal life. All you've got to do is do that. But the lawyer knows he needs some wiggle room. He realizes that the law is impossible to keep perfectly. He tries to, to narrow the definition of neighbor, and Jesus tells the story in response. Now, in the story, imagine the lawyer's there, the Jewish lawyer, and he's listening to Jesus tell this story. This is what your neighbor is. Where is he? Well, he's not a priest, and he's not a Levite. And he's certainly not a Samaritan. He hates them. So that only leaves one character for him to be. He's the victim. He's the one who was attacked by bandits and left half dead, naked and bleeding by the side of the road. You see, Christianity is all about where you think you are in the story. We tend to think that we're the good Samaritan. So we think the story's a moral lesson about doing good and doing our best. But there's no way that this lawyer would have thought he was the Samaritan. Remember, he's a racist. Remember, he hates Samaritans. There's only one place for him in this story, and that's in the ditch. Jesus is saying, you are the one who was saved. Someone came to find you when you were helpless. And this person poured himself out to rescue you, and there was nothing in it for him. Now, who could that be? Where are you in this story, friends? We're in the road. We're in the ditch. So then, who is the good Samaritan? According to the Bible, the Samaritan is Jesus. Jesus Christ came into our world, came to our place in the road, and he had pity on us, compassion, verse 33. He felt pity. He knew that coming to us would not just be costly, it would cost him everything because you were in the road, crushed and dying by your own sins. And he came into your world and had compassion on you and reached out his hand to save you at the greatest cost to himself, at the cost of a cross. You know, for Jesus to save you cost a lot more than two silver coins and the innkeeper's bill. It cost him everything he had he gave his life on that Roman cross. And when you realize that Jesus Christ is the good Samaritan, and you see what he gave for you, you start to understand the grace of God. Undeserved mercy for sinners. And as that grace begins to work in your life, your heart changes towards the poor and the marginalized and the deprived, the suffering and the powerless, you begin to identify with them. You realize, you know, I'm really just like them. And Jesus Christ became poor for me. 
and you start to really love your neighbor in generous, costly ways that cost you, not because you have to, but because the grace of God is changing you to be more like Jesus. Is that happening to you? Is that happening to you? Why should we love justice? Because of the character of God, because of the reign of God, and because of the grace of God. So I guess a sensible question for us now as a church to ask would be, what are the needs of our neighbors? Our neighbors. And the first answer is within our church community. Our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is your, fa- your family, your spiritual family, if you're a Christian. So just as you are always generous and caring, I hope, in providing for your own family, so the church we belong to has a claim on our hearts and our wallets. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 25. He said there's, when, he said, when the Son of Man comes, that's a way of talking about himself, he says, uh, all the angels are with him, he'll sit on a glorious throne, he'll gather everybody before him, and he separates out the people, the sheep and the goats. And then this king says to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, take the kingdom. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes, so you clothed me. I was ill, you looked after me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. And then these righteous ones answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and, f- and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you ill in prison or, or go to visit you? They didn't see him. And the king replies, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you did for me. You see what he's saying? Whatever you do for one of the least of his children, followers of Jesus, you've done, it, you've done it for him, not for that person. You did it for him. So we have a powerful, compelling duty of care to members and friends of Grace Church, first and foremost. But there is more. There is more. Because we've seen that throughout the Bible, God is concerned, passionate, about the outcast and the marginalized, the powerless, the refugee, Surely that concern is not now set aside by the church. Is it likely that the church of Jesus is held to a lower standard of compassion than the Old Testament people of Israel? Is it likely that the church is held to a lower standard of compassion than the Old Testament people of Israel? Of course it's not likely. Listen to Paul, Galatians chapter 6. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Okay, So we're going to do the good as we have ability to all people, especially to the family of believers. Let us do good as we have opportunities. So what kind of opportunities do we have? I want to show you a picture. This is from a scholar called Alistair Ray, who is a scholar at the University of Sheffield. He has worked on the indices of deprivation from 2015. And deprivation, he he explains, is broader than just poverty. Uh, Deprivation includes factors like healthcare, education, uh, family, access to stable family, and economic factors, and other things. So he he maps the whole whole of England by its levels of deprivation. And as you can see, this is Oldham, 
And there's a different colors depending on where you are in the town. Now, here on this side, which you can just about see, is the percentage of deprivation by decile. So this one here, the red one, is the 10% most deprived parts of this country are in red. So that would be these areas of Oldham. Then the next one's kind of orange, then it gets lighter and lighter, it gets yellow, then it goes green. And down here, in dark blue, is the 10% least deprived, so most affluent, least deprived areas in this country. And you can look at the entire country, it's fascinating, uh, with these maps. So you can see that Oldham is a very mixed place. You've got parts of Oldham there, there and there that are among the least deprived areas in the UK. And then these other parts here are kind of in the middle region. And then this part of Oldham is very, very deprived. People there would have a very low access to healthcare, education, money. A friend of mine is the guy who does the budgets for the NHS in Stockport. He told me that depending on where you live in Stockport, you have a 10-year difference in life expectancy. You're nodding because you know this. Depending on where you grow up in Stockport, you could live 10 years longer or 10 years shorter. That's Stockport. Just because of deprivation. Take 10 years off your life. Do you want to see another picture? How about Manchester? That's Oldham. There's Manchester. Now, isn't it interesting? You all thought Didsbury was posh. There's only one part of the city of Manchester that even makes it into the light blue, which I think is Didsbury Village. And look at these places, and look especially at this area here. And one thing we could say is that in many cities, it's like this, and the Bible-believing churches are usually in this bit. There's a big challenge for us as we want to plant churches and fill the city with communities of light. Now that, so you see that 40% of the areas of Manchester, the city of Manchester, are among the 10% most deprived parts of this country. Now that, friends, is an ocean of need. Because that map doesn't even capture data like homelessness, refugees, and human trafficking. It only captures the people who filled in the census. We live on an island in an ocean of need. And I want to be real about this. I think Grace Church is an affluent church. I didn't say rich. I know not many of you are earning big salaries yet. Some of you will. But we are affluent nonetheless. Most of us here have had the privilege of education. Some of you have had a lot of education. That's an amazing, amazing benefit because it gives you power. A lot of you are young, fit, and healthy. And the others are young and healthy. <laughs> most of us have a home. And most have stable family. Most have friends. Most, most are employed. Most have some opportunities. That actually is affluence. It's real affluence, in this, in, even in this culture, let alone worldwide. Most of us are in that small percentage of people who, who never experience real need, never experience real poverty and will never experience real powerlessness. Even within our church, there is little call for financial help. We have a hardship fund. It's rarely all used each year. So the question I want to leave us with is this. Is there a call upon Grace Church to show mercy and compassion to those of our neighbours in great need?
Is there a call? People who aren't in the church, but, ne- but still are neighbors. And what would that look like? What would it look like for us to show real mercy and compassion and seek justice for those who are our neighbors? Now, the easiest thing in the world for me at this point would be to make you feel guilty. It's a temptation for preachers. They give you a little book at the end of preaching school, how to make people feel guilty. But I don't think it would be helpful. The second thing we could do would be for the leadership team to try and sell you a proposal. We have been talking uh, as a team about social justice for nearly a year. Two elders went and carried out a lot of research into two charities, Christians Against Poverty and the Boaz Trust. They went, we, 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 we had a meeting with, with a worker from the Christians Against Poverty, it's called CAP, and th- these two elders then wrote papers and brought them, and we, could, we, we read them, and we prayed about it, we talked about it, and you know, we then just paused, and I'll tell you why, because we weren't sure the church would be up for it. Weren't sure. We didn't want to be in a sort of position where we're trying to bring something top-down, and the people who are not up for it. So we have a problem here. How are we going to move forward? We also realize there's a problem with waiting for it to emerge from the life of the congregation. Because I'm aware of lots of conversations that have happened that have gone nowhere. God keep us from being a chattering class of evangelical Christians who don't do anything. We're going to sing in a minute this song. We must go, live to feed the hungry. It says this, keep us from just singing. Do you know what? I find those words quite convicting. Is there a call upon our church to show mercy and compassion to our neighbors in need? So here's what we've decided. One takeaway. Not a takeaway meal. (laughs) We're going to arrange a consultation with our church, we're going to give plenty of notice, probably about five weeks' time. We're going to try and do it at a time where most people can be there, maybe a Saturday morning, and we will do our level best to make it as accessible as possible. We might even provide bacon sandwiches. We want to get a couple of hours together to talk about this, to pray about it, not so we're going to bring you a proposal and try and sell it, but we want to get the church together and see what our heart is on this matter, and then pray Together. So my final question to you is, will you get involved? Will you get involved? Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise.